0: The drum set that's behind me on the stage, when Worship and Music, our Worship and Music Ministry what, decided to purchase a new set a couple years ago, they tasked the drummers of the church, of which I'm one, to go and uh, do a field trip and play some drums. And there's nothing more that drummers like than going to hit things, so we did. Took an extended lunch break and a field trip and went and uh, hit a bunch of drums. But as we were there, uh, I was, uh, as I wasn't playing and the other drummers were kind of hitting things... Um, I was talking to the, the store person who was helping us with everything. And I was trying to see if I could move us into a, an evangelistic conversation. And uh, it, was interesting. it was very easy to do. Uh, he had a tattoo that led us right to the Bible. So we went that direction. And I asked my usual question, are you connected somewhere at a church in town? Nope, not connected. I'm really more of a Taoist Christian, which is an interesting concept. And I want to stick on that for just a moment. A Taoist Christian because those two things are in conflict with one another, as far as world views go. He didn't seem to have an issue with that at all. But, and I'm not really uh, super versed on Taoism, I refreshed my memory this week as I thought through this story again, but just in simple terms, um, Taoism has a belief, at least in modern uh, terms, in an impersonal force that is the source of all life. You would find it practiced nowadays maybe with a lot of gods and uh, a lot of exorcisms, uh, a lot of medicines and things to try and extend life, that's what it goes, but, but ultimately the impersonal force, the Tao, has created this life that's in you and me, and then we, uh, our goal is to be thankful for that and extend that life as long as possible, because this is a great gift. Now, there's some positives to that. One of the, one of the things about Taoism, simplicity, that's one of their, their key tenets. Uh, Humility is how I would sum it up as maybe one of the key tenets. Those we could say, okay, those are positive, virtuous things. But on the whole, it's in conflict with Christian belief because we don't believe in an impersonal God. We believe in a personal God. And and you have to think through what that means. An impersonal God has no self-knowledge, let alone any knowledge of you. It could create, but it only creates because it just has power. It doesn't have knowledge of self. A personal God knows themselves and can know you. An impersonal God cannot create with intention, it's just accidental. A personal God creates with intention, with care, with even love, as it turns out. So you can see that these two things are in conflict with one another. You can't at one time believe in an impersonal God and at the same time believe in a personal God as the creator of all life, as the only God. And I bring that up because I think clarity of what we believe matters greatly. Um, I believe that as we read in this passage, clarity of expectation when they talk about the Messiah matters. But I want us to be clear from the beginning as we talk about the baptism of Jesus and that moves towards remembering our own baptism as our kind of outlet for this, that when we accept one set of beliefs, we actually are rejecting another set of beliefs. And we live in a society that kind of wants to put competing beliefs together in belief systems, but it doesn't work. When you accept one set of beliefs, by implication, you're rejecting the opposite of those beliefs. And that's an important principle that we need to keep in front of us as we talk about Jesus' baptism and then our own baptism as we move towards the conclusion. I'm not there yet. I'm just at the start. But as we move towards that. So the expectation, as we heard from the passage this morning, in luke 3 i'm going to have a few different scripture passages we go through They're in your sermon notes at the very top page three of your bulletin there's a few Uh, luke 3 is our key text uh, for those that are following along if you just want to stay in one place open your bible luke 3 you'll be good to go but those that want to follow along you can find these others we'll skip through them uh, in rapid succession shortly for some of them the expectation in the days of jesus when john the baptist is on the scene is that the messiah the anointed king in the line of David is going to come. People are waiting for this day for the restoration of Israel, for the restoration of the temple. Those are the two great things they're waiting for because they're living under the authority of Rome and the Roman Empire at the time. They don't like this. This is not good. They're looking for the day when they're going to live under a king in that line of of David who's going to rule over Israel with sovereignty and the the rights of the temple aren't going to be corrupt. They're going to be rightly done so that they can be in right relationship with God and be completely faithful to who God is. There's a restoration they're waiting for. That's the expectation. John the Baptist comes on the scene, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, the one who's going to prepare the way, the prophet who's going to say when the Messiah comes. People are starting to catch that that's probably what he's doing, although you can see in the Luke text we heard this morning, they're kind of wavering, is this guy the Messiah or is he something else? They're trying to figure out all of this in light of their expectation and John the Baptist comes with this baptism for repentance. And you can read it doesn't the Luke text doesn't really talk much about the repentance piece, Matthew and Mark do. But that's there. That's what he's doing. The baptism with water for repentance. And you can see he's pointing out when the Messiah comes, there's a judgment that's going to happen. The winnowing fork is in his hand. He says that would have been like a large pitchfork kind of item to take the wheat and the chaff of your grain and throw it up in the air so that the chaff blows away and the heavy grain that you want falls down. You keep doing that. That's judgment, an image of judgment. That's what this Messiah is going to do. He's going to come and judge. Those who are with God in that restoration, you guys are going to be the the heavy head of grain falling down. Anybody who's not is the chaff that will be blown away in the judgment. The winnowing fork is in his hand. That stuff is going to be burned with unquenchable, inexhaustible fire, he says, that's not with God, that's not being restored with the Messiah. And interesting, Luke is written in Greek like the whole New Testament. The word for in, unquenchable or some of you have inexhaustible is asbestos. Just trivia for you today. But that's what's going to happen. So when John comes, there's an urgency to his message. You want to be restored. We want Israel to be restored. We want the temple to be restored. You want to be in on that restoration plan. So he comes with the baptism of repentance to turn from anything that would be contrary to God to be made clean and ready for this Messiah. That implies that there's something wrong, if there's repentance that needs to happen, that needs to be made right. And Jesus undergoes this baptism, which I think on its face is perplexing to us if we think about who Jesus was and is. we think about Jesus, let's just do a little Jesus 101, just a couple points. Um, Jesus was and remains God Jesus was never created. He's an uncreated being. He is the second part of the Trinity, the Godhead, the Son. Without beginning, without end, he is God. There is a mystery about the becoming human part that's hard to unpack. The fancy word that gets used is hypostatic union, God in human form, put together. But we have to recognize that Jesus has no beginning and has no end. We also have to recognize 52% of American adults in our day and age believe that Jesus at some point in his life sinned. Jesus didn't sin ever in his life. So you can see on the passages of scripture, let's go to the first one that's listed there, 1 Peter 2.22, which is citing Isaiah 53, saying basically Jesus is the one who's come, the suffering servant who's come, and it says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. There was absolutely nothing wrong with him nor did he ever transgress and do anything that's the opposite of what God wanted him to do. Hebrews 4.15 says a very similar thing talking about the great high priest that is Jesus, the one who goes between us and God on our behalf to enact our reconciliation with God. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been emptied in ev- or tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin. So Jesus was fully human. He could have transgressed. He could have done the opposite of what God wanted him to do. But did he? Did he? Okay, yeah, you can interact. No, he didn't. So that's important to keep in mind, and that is what makes the whole baptism a little more perplexing, but what we can also recognize, one more passage for us, is that Jesus in becoming human, so that he could be tempted in every way, and yet not sin. if you go to the, the third passage that's in view on, on our screen, it's Philippians uh, 2, excuse me two, five through eight, which is an early church creed, by the way, which tells us that Jesus emptied himself of the privileges of being God, essentially, in order for that hypostatic union. fully God, fully man, could have sinned, never did, emptied himself of the privileges of being God so that he could enter humanity like us, but is still God, kind of like the idea of that show Undercover Boss, right, where you have a CEO who goes in as a regular worker, empties himself of the privileges to do that. You kind of have the same thing going on with Jesus, which is why when I say it's perplexing that Jesus went through this baptism for repentance, It kind of confuses us. He doesn't need it. There's nothing to repent from. But a few things that we can pick out about why Jesus would have done this, uh, four reasons I'll highlight for us that kind of will give us something to go on as we move forward. One is Jesus does this to identify with humanity. Part of it is to show that the privileges have been removed and that he is human. He didn't need it, but he did it because he came to take our place ultimately. Second thing is to inaugurate his ministry to start it. And very closely connected to that is that it also reveals that he's the Messiah. If John the Baptist is the one pointing to him and then he comes and John recognizes him and says, here's the guy. He doesn't need this, but he's doing this. And this is the one we've been waiting for. My purpose was to point to him. Now I'm pointing to him. It does both B and C there to inaugurate and to reveal the Messiahship basically together. John validates that ministry in that moment. The prophet who was to come to point shows that it's all come to pass. And finally, simply as an example, not that we need John's baptism, but we need to follow what Jesus did and the reconciliation that Jesus gives. There is certainly more that Jesus did. Jesus did things that we couldn't do, but the example of Jesus is part of our starting point. There's obedience is what we need to recognize in that. Obedience to the will of the Father is the example we're following. So if we look at our key text in Luke three twenty one and 22, it reads, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. Now I want to stop there for a moment, because I don't know if you ever do this when you're reading the text. All Scripture is God-breathed. God's given it to us. We're getting the word of the Lord to us through Scripture. But do you notice, this is God speaking right here. Isn't that powerful to think about? It gives me pause when I read it. That God says to his son, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I think one of the things that we see it evidenced here with God to the Son, but by extension, because the Son came, some, there's an important thing that we should recognize. God loves you. And and I think uh, even though our culture has, I think, a limited theology of God, and it's fairly cheapened, we at least get that. And I think that's important to recognize. Sometimes we don't feel loved but as a basic theology 101 thing, whatever your past or your present, God loves you. Can you accept that word this morning? That whatever your past or your present, God loves you. And that's actually not something that should be in question. That God actually loves you. And wouldn't it be a joy to hear words like this? With you, I'm well pleased. You're my beloved. That's what some of your translations have. But we should also recognize about love That Let's take, for instance, a child who strays away from the parents. Love is still there, but what's broken in that process? The relationship. Just like the prodigal son, we see a broken relationship, but at no point in the story of the prodigal son does the father, whose son basically said, I wish you were dead, I'm going away, even at his lowest point, at no point does the father cease to love the son The relationship's broken. There's a lot of repair that's going to have to go on. But the love is not absent. So let's hear that clearly this morning. God loves you and God loves me. There's nothing we can do to stop that love from occurring. And all throughout the Old Testament, what you have, the chief thing, I think, that's pointed out through the Old Testament is the character of God expressed particularly in holiness. Love is part of that. That's part of who God is. But holiness is the chief takeaway we should take from the Old Testament about who God is. God is holy and we are not, and God has called us to be holy. And over and over again throughout the Old Testament, it's revealed we cannot achieve that goal. Cannot ascend those heights. We're always going to fall short. But we're shown what it takes to be in true relationship with God. God is holy and we need to somehow be holy in order to be in full communion with God. And it's in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, that God says, I know you can't do it, but I can. I can restore and reconcile the relationship through my son, Jesus Christ. With my help, you can be the holy people you're supposed to be. And so that's what we get. There's no cease uh, to God's love in that. In fact, God's love is ex- is-, is exemplified in the coming of Jesus Christ so that we can be put in right relationship. So that it poses to us the question of, are you in right relationship with the Father today? You are loved by default. God loves you because he created you. But are you in right relationship with the Father? And that's an important question we always need to keep before us. And we should recognize the example of Jesus then is that he shows in his life that that love is not earned by his obedience, His obedience to the Father is evidence of God's love. He's responding to God's love, not earning it. And that's an important thing to recognize. So C.S. Lewis points out in Mere Christianity, he says a live body is not one that never gets hurt, but one that can to some extent repair itself. In the same way, a Christian is not a man who never goes wrong, but a man who is enabled to repent and pick himself up and begin over again after each stumble. Because the Christ life is in him, repairing him all the time, enabling him to repeat in some degree the kind of voluntary death which Christ himself carried out. We're responding in obedience, and in doing that, we're not earning the love. God is remaking us as we respond to that love. So God says, you're my beloved. With you, I'm well pleased to the sun. Now, I want to point out a useful fact. I'm not a millennial, but I know and love a lot of them. Um, and poor millennials, I feel like, have gotten the short end of the stick too often being called like the trophy generation, uh, that they always got a trophy and they didn't have to put in the effort and that sort of thing. And of course, that sort of thing happened. But but let's take it easy on them. Um, let's, let's give them a trophy, shall we? No, I'm just kidding. I love millennials, I'm just not um, But let's just face it, if you do give everybody a trophy or a ribbon for competition, whether they won or lost, the person that came in first, it cheapens it, and the person that came in last, they know they didn't earn it, right? You know the feeling. You don't say, I'm proud of someone unless they've done something to be proud of, right? It cheapens it. I'm proud of you for doing nothing, no. I'm proud of you for the achievement. There is a response that comes from us. God gives us this love, and God offers us that reconciling relationship, but we actually have to take part in it. It's not just granted to us by the very nature that God loves us. 62% of American adults also have claimed to have made a commitment to Jesus Christ. That's great. But the proof is in the pudding. The question is, how is your obedience then? How are you responding to the love of God? That's where you're going to see how this has worked out. One other passage we can add this morning, uh, because I couldn't stop myself this week, is from 1 John 1, 1, 5, uh, where John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. We're going to be remade. We're going to be put in right relationship with God as we walk together with him. It's not just a commitment. It's the follow-through that matters. And so we can see when Jesus uh, responds to the Father, what he's doing is he's living under the authority of God the Father. And we should do the same if we're going to follow the example of Christ. So the first step is that we always need to repent. We constantly need to turn from those things that we do in our life, which we do on a regular basis, that put us in wrong standing with God. Jesus didn't have to. We must. So we acknowledge that Jesus did it on our behalf, but he didn't need to. We absolutely need it. Thanks be to God that Jesus did it. And now we're able to repent and turn from those things that would would put us out of communion with God and have us walking in the wrong direction. And so it turns out that we don't need John's baptism. Jesus fulfilled that. that. We could ask, why aren't we doing a baptism of repentance like John? Because Jesus fulfilled it and gives us something different, basically. He gives us a different baptism that comes. And because we... Can repent, and because we can be forgiven, we don't need to live lives steeped in sin. Jesus covered that. If we feel distant from God, and if you're sitting in here today feeling like you're distant from God, it happens often for some of us, then the first step is to say, I'm sorry to God. I want I want to be in a relationship again. And offer up those things that hold us back. Name them out specifically. Say, I'm sorry for these things, God. Can you forgive me? Because God will, through Jesus Christ. And so we receive that. We receive that forgiveness if we're going to live under the Father's authority because we can't be in communion without receiving the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And it's a response to God's love expressed in Jesus, not earning our salvation. We can't earn that. It's already been taken care of for us. We can simply receive it. And our obedience then is addressed all throughout Scripture in different ways, and we're reminded of how to be obedient, how to be obedient through Scripture. We're reminded. Uh, we just heard a part of a creed this morning. The early church wrote it down so we'd remember how to be obedient. We have it enshrined in, in creeds within our church that we say regularly: the Apostles' Creed or let's say the Nicene Creed, which describe how we're supposed to function in the faith and what it is that we believe. We have it in our baptismal vows. That's what Jesus gave us. She said, go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're part of this people who are being transformed. And so before we move on to that transformation by obedience point, um, I do want to look at the baptismal uh, vows that many of you have taken over the years or have been taken on your behalf and you've lived into them for infant baptisms. What we say in, in modeling what Jesus did for us in baptism is, The questions are, do you now desire to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? See, because by God's power, it's the first one. There we go. By God's power, and it's not by any other power, we're not baptized in any other name, we're not baptized in only one portion of the Trinity, we're baptized in the whole Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we can be made holy and be made into a holy people. The second question that we ask when we're baptized is proclaiming this covenant with Jesus Christ, do you now renounce all powers of evil and declare your opposition to a way of life in contradiction to the gospel? That is, when you accept one set of beliefs, you're rejecting another, right? I do, we say. Third question, do you repent of your sins, confessing Christ as your Savior and Lord and living as his faithful disciple? Are you going to know what Jesus said and live it out with his people? I do, we would say. Fourth, will you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer? Are you going to be grown up in this faith? And fifth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Will you do all in your power to participate fully in the life of this congregation to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what we're signing on to. We're remembering uh, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to us and the transformation of Jesus Christ in us by his making a people out of us. We're committing to that. We're committing to what Jesus uh, calls us to, which is that obedience... To God transforms us into something new. And we do it as God's people, the bride of Christ. Scott McKnight, in his book The Jesus Creed, points out we don't love God perfectly, and we might as well admit it. We love God and other others perfectly only when we follow Jesus through our piles of sin which we do when we participate in Jesus' own life. This expression, following Jesus, that we've often used, now gains full clarity. To follow Jesus means to participate in his life and to let his life become ours. And indeed, we're taking that on and being obedient in vows of baptism in the creeds, in living life together as we live this out, We're becoming a new people by the power of the Spirit working in us because we've said yes to the reconciling power of Jesus Christ in us. We can only be transformed into this image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, I think, evidenced by the whole of Scripture. Old Testament, couldn't do it. New Testament, Jesus comes, says, now you can because the Spirit is here. And in the baptism of Jesus Christ, one of the byproducts of that or main products, if you will, is that the Holy Spirit is unlocked. All of a sudden now, you see the three parts of the Trinity there, present, and on the day of Pentecost, completely released after the work of Jesus on earth. And we can have that reconciliation. Now the Holy Spirit is there transforming us from the inside out. And I would point out then, in the words of God the Father to Jesus... In our passage today, he says, you're my beloved, you're my loved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's praise for Jesus there. That's one other thing we can take away from this, is that if we're going to live under the Father's authority and in response to the work of Jesus Christ, we ought to be in the business of praising Jesus regularly in our lives and how we operate. We can do something as simple as uh, praying in Jesus' name. That's a really simple thing we can do. Rather than praying in the name of God, because God is not God's name, be more specific. I was reminded this week. Pray in the name of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Be specific in that. Praise God by that. We can do things that look like Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is empowering us to do. Not the opposite of Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to obey what I command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first thing part of that command. And if we're going to do those things, if we're going to obey Jesus, if we're going to love God, and yes, we need to love others and love self. Self needs to take a lower position if we're going to live that out. So we do selfless things rather than selfish things if we follow Jesus and are being transformed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, I think, is a tremendous example of this. Because if you think about his single vocation in life, he came into the world to do one thing, to point to Jesus. That was his job as a prophet. And he did it well. But if that was my job, and I'm not going to speak for you if that was your job, there are days when I suspect I'd want to think, well, but I'm pretty important because I'm doing this, right? I'd want to puff myself up a little bit. John had one job, point point. To Jesus, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And it was probably a tough job, right? People weren't always kind to John. did one job, point to Jesus. His self took a lower position so that the one who came to save would have the supreme position, the great high priest. If we're going to practice that in our own lives, I could say one simple practical example is as we go through our lives this week, take stock of what it is that you take in for yourself. We do an awful lot of things with simply the rationale that I'm doing this to make me happy. I do it, you do it. Try one of those things this week and don't do it. Withhold, especially if it, if it takes money, and instead take that money and invest it somehow in the gospel, in something that will amount to something for the kingdom. Whether that's as simple as uh, going out with somebody who otherwise doesn't know Jesus or whatever it may be, putting it in missions, I don't know, anything else, but to be selfless with it, if you want a simple application. When we do this, when we praise the name of Jesus and being transformed into his likeness, it's a constant recognition of the fact that we couldn't save ourselves. It's a constant reminder that we're being transformed into the image of Christ. It's constantly putting the focus away from ourselves so that we become Jesus Christ to those around us. I want to do something as our, our close. I'm going to invite the band forward. And uh, one thing that that I think is useful to do, every time we, we baptize someone within the church, it's important that we take those questions in as our own if you've been baptized too, to remember your baptism. There are some people who take it many steps further. Uh, every time they take a shower, they remember their baptism. That's a good thing. right? Every time they even drink a water, they remember their baptism. That'd be a harder thing. People do this regularly, and that's important. We need to remember who we're being formed into and the commitments we've made. So I want to have a moment of silence where we can hand over anything that would keep us from God's presence. And then We're going to have the questions on the screen. I'm going to give us all a chance, if you've been baptized, infant or believer, to remember your baptism with four questions like we heard before. I have the water up here. I'm going to put it down here after the service. I'm making you work for it. I'm not putting it to the back. But if you want to come up and remember your baptism by physically putting your hands in the water to remember it, come up afterwards. It's cold water following the uh, tradition of the early church. You're welcome. And right there, just put your hands in it if you want. Remember your baptism. So let's take silence. if, If you are so inclined, put your hands out in front of you to both give and to receive from the Lord. Now, as we say these questions, obviously anybody can—you don't have to answer. If you've never been baptized, um, you definitely don't have to answer. But I will encourage you if you're interested in baptism. These cards are in your pew, and they're typically there every week. Check one of these off and give it give it to me afterwards. If you want to be baptized, we're going to do baptisms on May 5th of this year, which is going to be Sacrament Super Sunday, basically uh, with the Lord's Supper and baptism together. Um, but let's, let's commit together as God's people baptized with these questions and answers. There, I didn't put them on the screen, did I? No, those are the different ones. I'll read them to you. This was my mistake. You get to hear them. Just, I do. Do you notice I'm not answering the, do you desire to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is not a rebaptism. You've already said yes to that so do you renounce all the forces of evil the devil and all his empty promises say i do do you confess jesus christ as your savior and lord do you intend to continue in the covenant of god made with you in holy baptism to live among god's faithful people to hear the word and share in the lord's supper and finally do you intend to proclaim the good news of god in christ through word and deed, to seek Christ and serve him in all people and to strive for justice and peace in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation promised in Jesus Christ and for its benefits, the forgiveness of sins, acceptance by you and your people, and the promise of eternal life. We also thank you for our baptism, itself a divine gift, which is a sign and seal of your gracious favor. Now we pray that you will strengthen us with your gift of grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and reverence, the spirit of wonder and awe in your presence, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.